welcome back to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche, and today, on the heels of the 4th of July and heading into summer, we have an episode all about America Chavez and Sam Wilson and what it means for them to wear the stars and stripes as people of color in the Marvel Universe. First up, I'm talking to Kalinda Vasquez, writer of the new America Chavez series, America Chavez, Made in the USA. Now, America has appeared in the West Coast Avengers, the Young Avengers, the Ultimates, one of my personal favorites, and her first solo series in 2017, a 12-issue run by Gabby Rivera, who I've also interviewed, and she's really, really, really amazing. America has been stewarded by some amazing folks, and she's one of the few out queer superheroes to have her own title. Her run on America Chavez dives into America's origin story, her arrival on Earth, and the Puerto Rican family in New York who found and helped raise her. We're going to get into a lot of that, plus a little bit of Kalinda's own origin story. Kalinda is not new to writing origin stories. She's worked on Star Trek Discovery, Marvel's Runaways, Fear of the Walking Dead, Once Upon a Time, and even has a new Star Trek movie currently in development. Needless to say, I am a huge fan of Kalinda's writing and, of course, America Chavez, who is one of the absolute coolest characters in the Marvel Universe. Kalinda, thank you so much for joining me on Marvel's Voices. You've had so much movement with your career over the last 16, 18 months, and some of the announcements are just coming out. I mean, congratulations, Star Trek. Big deal. For you as a writer, do you just decide one day to just be like, you know what, I'm just going to say yes, I'm just going to keep writing, I'm, I'm just going to keep moving? Well, it was a really strange, interesting 18, last 18 months because I think by like April or May of 2020, I had nothing. Like America Chavez was paused. I had a pilot that I tried to sell. It didn't sell. I was desperate to secure employment before I delivered my son. I was unsuccessful in doing that. And then he was born and it was like, America was back. And now there's this Star Trek opportunity. And now this other project that you thought was dead is also coming back. And it was like, it was a total feast or famine thing where it was like famine and then all of a sudden the feast came and it was like okay I'm ready I think (laughs) I love that because it is clear you're doing what you love I can see how calm and natural the joy is on your face when you're talking about these big world building things for those who may not be familiar with your work you've worked on Marvel's Runaways Fear the Walking Dead and Star Trek Discovery What is it about writing, particularly uh, these kinds of stories, that draws you to this work? I mean, really, as long as I can remember, I have loved stories. Like, I consider myself a story addict. And as a kid, I would consume it in every form I could. Books, television, movies, uh, comics. Um, I was just desperate for stories I just I loved to like as a kid we would have storytellers occasionally come to the school kind of performative storytellers who'd like get into it and I thought that was amazing like 
I would be on the edge of my seat. And so I've just always really loved them regardless of the the way that they're communicated. And it was my dream, but it wasn't a dream, if I'm being totally honest, that was fostered at home. My parents, uh, my mother immigrated from Colombia. My father is a, I guess, second generation Puerto Rican. His parents had immigrated, uh, or New Yorican, as they say, because he grew up in the Bronx. And they were like, okay, be practical. You know, you go, you get your education, and you find a stable job, a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, you know, where you can always find work. You do not pursue something flighty in the arts. And so that really wasn't as much as I, you know, and I did in high school, I was in the drama department and I wrote for the lit magazine and I would try and find these outlets. But it wasn't until I was in college that I really started to kind of question my future and think about what I wanted that future to be. I mean, my dad wanted me to major in econ and I took one economics course and was like bored to tears. I'm like, this is horrible. Like, I cannot devote my life to this. It's so, I don't, my brother works in finance. So, Berto, if you're listening to this right now, don't be offended. Obviously, everyone has their calling, right? But that was not mine. And I became friends with this woman who I'm still very close with today. And her dad worked in the business. He was a TV producer and director. And it was revelatory to me to know that you could do that. Like it wasn't, I guess in my mind, it was like either you were Steven Spielberg or like Julia Roberts, you know, you were either like a superstar actor or a superstar director. And there's nowhere in the middle. Look, I have a lot of degree. I get exactly what you're saying. You have this watershed moment where you're like, oh, I can do these things. So for you, what happens? How do you break this news to your parents? What (laughs) happens next? Like, how do you take this thing that you love and turn it into a career? So I think very much my parents wanted to know the same because I broke it to them that I was going to double major in English and history and they thought I was a lunatic and there were a lot of arguments there. And look, I was blessed enough to have my parents financially support me in college, which is a privilege. And they threatened to pull that privilege because they felt like, hey, if we're helping you out, we get a say in what you're going to study. On the one hand, I get it. And on the other hand, you know, I was not happy about it at all. And I started to, I was kind of scrambling to prove to them that I had like a plan I'm like, no, trust me, like, this is going to work out. And I started doing research about internships. And I'm going to kind of reveal my age here. But like, I feel like back then, internships aren't what they are now. Like, I feel like they're much more talked about, published. It's like, yeah, get your internship. Companies will post like, we're looking for an intern. Yeah, you had to dig on a board. Like someone had to know somebody who knew somebody else who knew about the internship. I had never heard of it before. And it was like, oh, okay. So I did research and I like blind applied to an internship at MTV in New York in the 1515 building in their series development department. And somehow I got a call for an interview, literally called my dorm landline, again, revealing my age. 
I too had a dorm landline. Let's both not reveal our age, but I think we might be very close. I still remember getting that call. It was like, hi, this is such and such from MTV. And I was like, what? And I interviewed during spring break and I got the position. And that summer I went and I interned. Uh, I worked three, four days a week in the 1515 building. And that I think was like the beginning. I mean, at that time too, MTV was a lot more present, I feel like in the zeitgeist. And so it felt like a a very big deal, even though I didn't think that I was going to be like a music video director or even necessarily work for MTV long term. It felt like it was a huge kind of like moment of getting my foot in the door. Your origin story is pretty incredible. And now you've gone from that to actually writing origin stories. Did 18, 19, 20-year-old Kalinda imagine that this is where life was going? I think in her wildest dreams, you know, she would dare to dream that, like, maybe one day, you know, I would be doing some of this stuff. But I was very, like, even then, you know, I interned, I went back the next summer, I interned at MTV Films. And then I moved to L.A. shortly after graduation, and I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I was like, okay, I'm going to write, produce, direct, develop, edit, do it all. Like, it was, Yeah, so very you scattered. just decided you were just going to do everything. It was very scattered. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have much of a game plan. And, like, in college, it was like, okay, I'm a college student. I will get a college internship. And like that will lead to something. But then that next step was was hard. My first year in L.A. was like definitely had its challenges. Looking at your IMDb and what you've accomplished, you have really been at the forefront of a lot of properties that people love. Talk to me about your fandom, because honestly, to do this kind of work, these big world building, complicated stories with complicated relationships you have to love it. What appeals to you about them? And honestly, what appealed to you about coming from TV and adapting graphic novels and comic books and then deciding to say, oh, absolutely, I want to write America Chavez. I know exactly what I want to do. I've been really lucky in that I've had the opportunity to work on some you know, amazing titles. Like I remember going into the comic book store to buy Trades of Runaways and fangirling over Brian K. Vaughn and then having the opportunity to interview for that show and then getting to meet him. He's so nice. He's the sweetest guy, ridiculously talented. And, you know, it felt like a huge responsibility. I think with a lot of these things, what I feel is the responsibility of wanting to honor the characters, wanting to do right by them, wanting both fans familiar with the uh, material to be happy with what they see and also crafting a story that's not so dense and steeped in canon that like a new fan could come along and appreciate it in a different context. I think that's, that's a big part of the balance too. And then, you know, we're getting to work on Star Trek Discovery. Like I was literally named after a Star Trek character. My dad is a huge Star Trek fan. I am trying not to geek out over here right now, but like, yes, you are. 
Oh my god. I mean, I don't remember a time where Star Trek was not a part of my life. That franchise had so much meaning to me as a kid, not only because I loved the stories and the, you know, the ship and all that stuff, but like seeing people on board who were people of color. And it was like Star Trek was a place where like, if you're different, that's okay. We love you anyway. So now I got to know. What is the origin story of your name? Oh, I wish it was, I wish it was more exciting. It's pretty banal. My dad watched original series when it aired in the late 60s and he loved it and when my mother was pregnant, a rerun came on and he saw episode 50 by any other name, which sadly listeners won't be able to see this, but I have this collector's card on my desk of Kalinda the Kelvin who was featured in that episode and my dad was reminded of the name and he was like I think we should name our daughter that (laughs) my mom was like okay my heart just literally exploded like I love how our fandom impacts us in such a way where we bring that with us And I love that you take that care in opening the door and bringing fans in as you're considering how you're writing and what you're writing. So now let's get to America. You get approached to write America Chavez. What does this look like? And why did you say yes? So I, prior to America, had done a little bit of of work in comics before. I wrote Jericho season four. For those who remember that uh, CBS show. Uh, And then I wrote a graphic novel for Once Upon a Time, which uh, was a show that I wrote on the TV series. That's how I got that opportunity. And then things kind of died down in comics for, for a few years. And then I actually remember it was my birthday weekend. And I had gone out of town to celebrate. And I get this email from Annalise Bisa. It's like, hey, would you like to write an America Chavez book? And I remember my heart kind of stopped because I was so excited and so terrified at the same time. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, yes. But like I, I was thrilled and flattered to, you know, be asked to be considered. But I was scared because it, it, I just, again, that responsibility and because I know how much she means to so many people. And because it's like, let's be real. How many like queer women of color are out there as superheroes? It's like, not too many. Definitely weren't any when I was growing up. And so I really wanted to, I was like, okay, well, if I say yes to this, like I really just want to do right by her. I mean, I feel that way about every character that I write for. It's like, I feel like every character I write for, I want them to be treated with love and respect and nuance and show them to be multidimensional but I think I felt that even more so with America all right so now it's out in the world for fans who are just getting introduced to America Chavez or just getting introduced to this particular series what's going on because I know this goes back to American's origin story where do we find her in this particular chapter in her journey as a superhero so this series picks up 
kind of taking where we last saw her in West Coast Avengers, where she is out in L.A. She's been hanging out with Kate Bishop and her other pals and been dating Ramon and kind of making like this life for herself. And then out of the blue, she gets this call from home. Like she realizes that there's this piece of her past, these people from her past who are in trouble. And she needs to go help them out. And when she goes to help them out, she gets pulled into this kind of mystery of where she really comes from. She thought she knew where she came from. You know, she has very fond and distinct memories of her mothers, Amalia and Elena, and the utopian parallel, this idyllic kind of perfect place. And some of those memories are true and some of those memories happened in a context that are a little bit different than exactly what she remembers. One of the things about America that's always been very striking to me is that while she's from the utopian parallel, she has always been considered and accepted as Latinx and queer. In addition, one of the ironies of her character is that she wears the stars and stripes. And that is a very complex space to exist as a character of color. With this origin story and all of these mysteries and finding out more about her past, how does that all fit into her journey as a superhero? I mean, I think it definitely recontextualizes her as an American because I think in the original origin story, you could say she immigrated from another dimension Right. And now that piece of her background, that that Latinx piece is still very much there. But like she actually was born in the state like she is of this earth. And so I think that that's definitely a shift for her to realize, like, I'm not as alien as I thought I was, literally. And I think it's something just drawing from my own experience, I am Latinx. I was born in the U.S. There have been times that I have felt alien in this country culturally, depending on, you know, where I've been, who I've been surrounded by. And then I've had moments where it's like, no, wait a minute, damn it. Like, I'm an American. Like, this is actually like my culture. And like, yes, I may have been like... My, you know, group may have been marginalized or we may be treated in a certain way and in inequalities and like all those things are true. But I think I've also had moments of just like kind of owning who I am. And it's like, no, like you don't have a right to like marginalize me or like or try to like not hear my voice because like I have as much right to be here as you do. And like, look, I think that would be true whether or not I emigrated from another country versus born here. I mean, I think we have, right, like inalienable human rights. But I think one of the things that, just speaking for myself, that is frustrating about people of color who are Americans is like, guys, we've been here always. You know, we've helped like build this nation. We've fought in your wars. Like we've been paying taxes. I feel like I would love to hear your perspective too. Well, it's interesting. My father is Mexican, Haitian, and German, among other things. And my mother is Creole, Haitian, French, and Native American, which 
makes it an interesting dynamic for me, like this idea of how do we craft voice? How do we accept and embrace our voices? What that kind of brings up for me is another question. How do you, as you're writing these characters, work to ensure the genuineness of interactions? How a person of color moves about being this embodiment of justice in a world that you just described, you know, where there's this idea of not just owning our voices, but owning our own spaces. That's a great question. And I think it's going to sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm actually going to bring it back. (laughs) One of the things that is both interesting and frustrating to me is like when I'm asked on like a survey what my race is, there's like Hispanic white and Hispanic other, right? There's no like, you're like black, white, right? Like indigenous, and it's like, well, I'm actually a mix of everything. Like I have indigenous ancestry, I have black ancestry, I have European ancestry, but it's like, there is no box for me. Yeah. So look, for me, I am culturally black. And I don't know if you're the same way, but when it comes to forms, when it comes to filling things out, I actually will check multiracial or other. But honestly, there's a certain feeling when checking, quote unquote, other. Yes. It's like, wait, I don't get... I remember being a kid and going to a gas station and wanting to get one of those cheesy license plates with my name on it. But of course, I never found Kalinda. I bet you never found Angelique either. (laughs) It was just like, hey, why don't I get mine? Like, yep. Nope. (laughs) Never found my name at the gas station. Never was there. It's totally fine. I even have a character named after me in Dark Shadows called Angelique. Still didn't get any of that stuff. And, you know, I grew up, like I said, culturally black with other influences mixed in that I don't think I really understood as a kid, but I'm sure it's the same way from you being from New York because culturally, a lot of folks who are from New York are just like, I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you find your voice in all of that? What I try to do is just listen to my gut, listen to that inner voice. It's like, yes, this may not be how the world expects me to sound, or even how a certain community expects me to sound, including my own. But this is how I sound. And I try to have, you know, the characters that I write for embody that in a way that, you know, sometimes hopefully defies expectations about what people may think a Latinx person should sound like, a mixed race person should sound like, a queer person should sound like. It's like, you know, really just trying to come from the place of like, this is a unique individual human being. There is no other individual like them in the entire universe. And just kind of like crafting their individuality, but also in a way that shows like, they're relatable, right? And they're approachable and they have everyday struggles just like you and me. I love that. And I can hear it in your voice, this challenge of also making them relatable, both in their genuineness and their authenticity to a particular community, but also across the board. Because when you look at characters like America Chavez or Miles Morales, they are still relatable whether or not you have that same lived experience because of that authenticity. Yeah, I mean, I think for 
for me, that's always the goal. And definitely, it's like the more specific something is, the more relatable, right? I mean, I know that smarter, more famous writers than me have spoken to that. <laughs> but going off their, you know, comments, I, I do feel like that's true. So one of the things that I love is that while you write mostly for TV, you've had a really varied career that, you know, various parts of production, obviously TV, big screen, graphic novels, and comic books are a team sport, right? How did this compare to the writing process for TV or for film? I think it was definitely similarities and differences there. When I first was invited uh, by Annalise, I did like attend a story summit at Marvel to talk about the character and other, uh, you know, Marvel luminaries were there, such as Sana Aminat, Steve Wacker, and C.B. Sabolsky, and had, you know, a whole team of editors there. And I presented some of my ideas, they gave me some feedback, and we talked it out and that very much felt like kind of a writer's room setting and then I went off to my little writing cave and had to then generate an outline and that was a little bit both the same in tv and that like yes once you break your episode you go off and outline it but it was a good amount of time by myself before I then went back and shared it with the group and then once I started getting into the scripting for the issues, there was also like a like a give and take. I would turn in my drafts, I would get notes, I would do revisions, which is similar to, you know, writing TV scripts and movie scripts. Um, there is very much that give and take, not with editors, but with executives or head writers, depending on what you're doing. But if I'm being honest, I did feel a little more... Like once the story was kind of set and approved, I felt like I had a bit more leeway to just kind of take an issue and run with it. And that was fun. That was definitely fun. And then, of course, once Carlos, our amazing artist, started to turn in pages, that was just so exciting. It was like the equivalent of looking at dailies, right? It's like, oh, my God, like I had this on the page and then he just took it and brought it to the next level. And then getting to see the colors from Jesus, like, and then that's a whole next level, you know, and then the lettering from Travis and, and to really see all the pieces come onto it. It is like kind of like watching a cut, you see like a rough cut of an episode, and then you see it with the music and the sound effects and the color timing, and it just comes to life on a, in a whole new way. Now I'm curious. Do you think that you learned anything from this process of comics writing that you're going to bring back to TV or film with you or vice versa? I think the thing that's, and I think it moves back and forth. The thing that I always need to remind myself is like, don't freak out if the first version of what you see isn't exactly what you picture in your head, right? So it's like, I've seen dailies before on an episode that I wrote and been like, oh my God, it's this, it's that. And then it's like, wait, no, relax. This is just like one piece of many. And so I think that was just helpful in looking at, you know, the pencils were always amazing, but it's just a reminder. It's like, yeah, they're amazing and they're missing stuff, right? They're missing colors and they're missing, you know, the dialogue and like, 
give yourself some space to react as you see different iterations of it coming in. Because then by the time it's complete, like it is going to feel like a whole completed issue. Um, and I think that that's something that translated over from TV for sure. Okay. So that actually begs the question. The title of the series is America Chavez Made in the USA. That is a title that has a lot of implications to it, particularly for folks who closely relate to America's story. We've discussed a little bit about what it means to wear the stars and stripes, particularly as a person of color, particularly as a queer person of color. What are you most excited for readers to get to see and what should they be looking out for? Well, I think for me, and look, this is some of the stuff, you know, with stories and with at the risk of sounding pretentious with art. It's subjective, right? So what has meaning to one person, it's going to land differently on somebody else. You know, for me, what I find inspiring in regards to everything you just said, it's like people of color have made an impact on this country in indelible ways in spite of all the challenges they've faced, the harassment, the violence, the systematic racism for the black community. You know, it's just like, it's in spite of all those things, they have still flourished. They have still impacted the arts, politics, the economy, like all these things. And I find that to be inspiring. And I think in this run, for me, it's like, look at everything that America went through. And she's still this badass, you know, she's still this like courageous, inspiring, kind, like icon. And so that's what that's for me, what I think is exciting. I hope others think that's exciting, too. And, and I hope that readers continue to tune in to see the conclusion of, you know, where she's really from, um, and where she's going. There's just this undertone of perseverance and resilience that is so much a part of America's story. The journey of people of color within this country and also the character, America, and everything that she has gone through. And the sacrifices that have been made for her to exist in any space and time are just so profound. Now, how do you think that impacts the way she's written as a character? I think that she has a sense of humor about things. I think for her, her sense of humor has been a bit of a shield, right? Like, oh, everything kind of bounces off me. I have my sarcasm. That's a bit of my wall to kind of protect what's inside because I've been through so much. But I also think in this run, she's going to be challenged to not resort to using her sense of humor all the time. And she's going to be forced to deal with some difficult emotions and deal with some having to kind of just work through some pain that she had locked away as a child. And I think that I hope that, you know, readers will feel like she grew during this run. And I think she's always going to have her sense of humor. It's definitely like a part of who she is that that little bit sassy, little bit snarky edge to her, I think is is fun and, you know, definitely don't want to lose that. But I think exploring, you know, part of why that came to be 
is also something that interested me. As you were saying that, I was like, yeah, she's snarky. Like <laughs> the devil may care snarkiness of America is one of those things I really love. And, you know, I picked up the book because of Monica Rambeau and I stayed in the book for America's personality, for that perseverance, that resilience I talked about, for the fact that she like rides hard for her friends and is there for her family. So I am excited for folks to read more about America's story. And now I got some quick fire questions. I need to know. They're very important to me. First up, what is your favorite Marvel character? That feels like a trick question. It's not a trick question. <laughs> okay. All right. So we'll take it back. Let's be fair. How did you first get introduced to Marvel? I mean, the first Marvel character that really drew me in, honestly, was Spider-Man. It was Peter Parker. Like, I remember a Spider-Man issue laying around my house that my dad had picked up. And it was like, hey, this is a kid. He's from New York. He lives in Queens. Like, we have some stuff in common, you know? And I think, I think particularly the New York connection was huge. And he was, he was really my entry point into Marvel characters, I would say. And then after him, I would say X-Men. Okay, so what was the thing about X-Men that drew you in? I just loved that there were these characters who were, you know, the younger characters who were dealing with being an adolescent and having these powers and going to a school, you know, where they were trying to work on these powers and loved that they were outcasts in society because I felt like I could relate to that too. And yeah, I definitely was like around during the animated show days. Okay, my last question, because it seems there is no Kalinda without storytelling and there's no storytelling without Kalinda. What does storytelling mean to you? Well, I feel like there's definitely storytelling without me, but I would not want to live in a world where there was no storytelling. I just, I don't know. They have like almost like a spiritual meaning to me at the risk of sounding like kind of woo-woo. Like, I don't know, like myths and fables and folklore, like these stories, history of oral tradition, like kind of going from that to where we are today, where we have all these new ways of telling stories. I feel like they're just, they're really important to keep us going. Like I know stories have kept me going when I've had difficult times and being able to think of like, well, Frodo and Sam made it to Mordor and therefore... I can make it through this. People are going to laugh at me so much for that. No, 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 no. It is not woo-woo at all. <laughs> I, I literally feel like you just touched a lot of hearts, um, including mine. I mean, that's the way I felt about the Twilight Zone. It's the way I felt about Star Trek. Honestly, if you were to sum up this conversation, it really is about human spirit and resilience and perseverance and the relatability of telling that story it's kind of like the universal religion for human beings is stories it's like we can all you know relate hopefully hopefully one day the people on planet earth will <laughs> realize that and we'll stop tearing each other apart <laughs> 
All right, everyone, go out and find America Chavez made in the USA wherever you get your comics like right now. I mean, well, not right now. You should stay for the rest of the episode. But then after the episode, go do it. Read it. I'm so excited. But before you go do that, I'm talking to Christopher Priest, legendary writer and editor who wrote Sam Wilson's first solo miniseries, The Falcon, back in 1983. The reason I'm talking to Priest in our season on authenticity is because it was important to him that Sam was more than just Captain America's sidekick. Priest wanted Sam to be his own person, not just a superhero, but a versatile and well-educated social worker with a master's degree rather than this often one-dimensional black character we'd seen before. Although the Falcon, as a character, was created in 1969, before Priest stepped in, the Falcon had only had one spotlight story, Marvel premiere number 49 in 1981. After that story, Priest pitched a solo series to then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, who loved it, but it sat there for another two years. The four-part miniseries is set in Harlem and features what many of us first knew and some of us consider the modern version of Sam Wilson as a social worker and a superhero. The Falcon was one of the first Marvel comics largely created by a black creative team, priest and artist Mark Bright. Two decades later, Sam Wilson took over as Captain America in Marvel Now, wearing the Stars and Stripes for three years before passing the mantle back to Steve Rogers. Whether as Captain America or the Falcon, Sam's prominence and the authenticity of his story have increased exponentially since 1983, helped largely in part by Priest's run. Thank you so much for coming on Marvel's Voices. Did you have favorites? Like, were you like, yo, Hulk is my favorite, yo, Spider-Man is my favorite? Because at the time, you didn't have a lot of choices of Black characters, which a lot of folks that I've interviewed will immediately go to Storm or they'll immediately go to the animated, or they'll immediately go to Bishop or Falcon or Black Panther because they're of a different generation, right? They are of a generation that got exposed to those characters very early. You didn't have the animated X-Men series at this point. You weren't even thought about yet. Yeah, but at the same time, a lot of comic book fans, they want to read comic book characters that they can identify with, which is why traditionally Black characters at least in the old days, we're having a hard time selling because, you know, traditionally been a product created by white males for white males. Now, a lot of that's changing now, but uh, certainly back in those days, the black characters that were being published, it was just bad. I don't have a better way of explaining it. And I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to read that any more than I wanted to see, you know, three the hard way or, or the, you know, the black exploitation film because it was a fantasy. It was more or less uh, a caricature of a life that you know, these were characters I didn't recognize and voices I didn't recognize because they were so disingenuous. They just weren't weren't genuine at all. It's true, right? When you're thinking back to some of the earlier non-superheroes, like when you're thinking about to the black characters, very much were all characters. You know, when you think about Whitewash or Gabe or any of those characters before you even get to T'Challa and even T'Challa to an extent, from what I'm getting from you, you just wanted to tell a good story. It didn't matter what the character was. Yeah, I think that uh, what's important to know is that I'm a child of busing, 
which by means like in the 60s, there were these efforts from the federal government on down to integrate the schools. So we didn't have forced busing in New York City, but we had voluntary busing. So my mother signed us up, volunteered to have us bust a half an hour away from our house to attend school in a white neighborhood. So I grew up going to school in a Jewish neighborhood and all my friends, my school friends, they were all like Jewish kids and my friends at home were all black kids. And to me, that was perfectly normal. I mean, I didn't see anything odd about it. And then, you know, there's a certain level of code switching. So I talk one way when I'm at home, another way when I'm at school. And as a result, I'm, I'm kind of a perfectly crafted liberal, you know, bordering on libertarian person. And I find racism to be very strange and scary and illogical. And I think racism is basically about a lack of imagination. If, that, if that's the best you can come up with, I mean, you hate me because of the color of my skin. There's so many other reasons to hate me. You know, I could give you a list of reasons. I'm not a very good person. There's lots of reasons to hate me. Hating me just because I'm black. Come on, you can do better than that. You know, um, so when I go to the comic book rack, I wasn't looking for the black character. I was looking for the entertainment, the the exciting character. Now, for me, it was always Spider-Man. It was, I think Spider-Man was always, you know, my favorite character. But I, I liked all the characters. I liked Captain America and Thor and, and, and you know, Hulk to a certain extent, but when I spun the rack over to Luke Cage or, you know, things of that nature, I wasn't looking for those kinds of things. The way readers kind of do today. I was always open to, you know, I read a lot of books, you know, I liked stories. You know, as a kid, even as a teenager, you know, there was this guy named Irving Watanabe that worked in the, uh, the Marvel bullpen, you know, and he was like 170 years old. I don't know how old Irving was, but Irving... He had lived a life. He'd lived a, a really long, complete life. And the privilege of sitting there and, and hearing his stories. I didn't care that the guy's Japanese and I'm black. What does that mean? You know, I wanted to hear the stories. And I just wouldn't pay attention to stuff that just was disingenuous. So my question is, you watched this evolution, right? This evolution of it being really just Luke Cage, Black Panther, Falcon in its very beginnings of Falcon, for you, for black characters, you basically have worked through and seen the entire evolution, at least as a fan and a writer. Do you think it's gotten better? Unquestionably. I think it's just a matter of, I think one of the reasons why society, American society as a whole, there was this, almost this revolution, this very compact time period where the country went from a non-acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community to embracing it, or at least embracing it to whatever extent we embrace it now. That happened fairly quickly. That happened in, in way less than a generation. And part of the reason it happened was that people became brave enough to come out to their friends, to come out to their family, to come out to their loved ones, which put them at grave risk. And many suffered for that and were rejected and pushed out of families or pushed out of relationships. But the fact is, once people actually started to know a gay person or a lesbian woman, a transgender person, once we started to know someone personally like that, then we started to realize, you know, this is my best friend. This has always been my best friend. Now, am I going to throw my best friend under the bus because uh, they came out to me or, or what am I going to do here? So now we have to kind of like examine our social contract 
And as far as, you know, how the black characters evolved in the comic book field, it's that there were no black people in the comic book field. I mean, we had black artists, but most of them worked remotely and they didn't really have much of an editorial voice and so forth. But there were no voices in editorial. There were really no, no black writers. And over time, we started to get more black writers, more female writers and more writers of you know, different genders and different sexual orientations. We started to get a more diverse pool of writers that had genuine voices that could bring that genuineness to the product. So now I think if I went into a comic book store this afternoon, you know, I would find things on the rack that do speak to me because I went, yeah, okay, they got that right. That feels right. I love the Falcon now, the Falcon that exists (laughs) in this moment. Your take on the Falcon was really groundbreaking for a lot of the reasons you've kind of already laid out, which is this idea of genuineness and authenticity and, and characters actually making sense is what I've, I've garnered from a lot of this conversation. You know, some people cite your work as like a major turning point for this character. How would you imagine Sam Wilson now if you had an opportunity to write him again? Well, I think, so I did this uh, Falcon miniseries, which I thought was awful, although it was kind of a turn in the road for the character because up until then, the character had kind of just been like generic black character number five, you know, and he was talking a lot of jive and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, when I was given that assignment, with anything I do, and it could be Vampirella, I'm writing Vampirella now. And I said, look, I'll do Vampirella if... I can take her seriously and really drill down into it and, and take the sort of Neil Adams photorealism, the verisimilitude that Neil Adams brings to the visual is what I strive to bring to the writing. So with a guy like Falcon, I asked myself, well, this guy, Sam Wilson was a New York city social worker. Now, what does that mean? What do they do? And what they do is, is a lot of horrible stuff where they come to your house and count how many irons or how many televisions you have to make sure that, you know. You know. But in order to be a, a New York City social worker, you have to have a master's in social work in MSW. And it occurred to me that there's no way that anybody could get through school and earn their master's degree in social work and be a moron. So I just decided this guy is not a moron and that the guy is capable of code switching that yes, he can talk jive, you know, if that's what's called for at the moment or, or if he's in a certain environment. But if he's running around with Captain America, I, I, did, I just, that didn't work for me. So I kind of changed the speech pattern around. Now skip ahead 15 years or whatever it was, maybe 20. Now I'm writing a book called Captain America and the Falcon. And I was having a great time with that book because there I decided, you know what, I'm going to have Sam... The only way to make Captain America interesting is to contrast him against other people because Cap is such a straight arrow guy. He's a do the right thing guy and Cap will find a way. That's the secret to writing Cap. Just all you got to know is that he's the guy who will, no matter what the odds are, he will find a way. Now, how do you make a guy like that interesting is like you have to give Paul McCartney his John Lennon. So I wanted to give Sam a different flavor. And whereas Cap would be unwilling to cut corners to achieve whatever the goal is. 
Sam would be doing things behind his back for good reason and to get good results from it. But I wanted to contrast the fact that Sam was a more practical down-to-earth guy who was dealing with the world as it is, while Cap was dealing with an idealized version of the, you know, a post-World War II version of the world. So Sam was doing a lot of kind of sneaky stuff behind his back. And they had this really great dynamic. And I, I was really kind of heartbroken when that book went away. And that was the second time I quit comics, actually. It was right after that. And uh, But yeah, you know, if I had a chance to write him, I think if you go back and look at that Captain America and the Falcon miniseries, that's the guy that I would be writing. This guy that uh, I can't really explain it, except that, you know, he was no longer a sort of generic, you know, sidekick sort of guy. He was definitely a more full-fledged three-dimensional character who was capable of forming his own plan. And, uh, you know, they would arrive at and achieve whatever their goal is. And Cat may not even realize it until well after the fact that Sam had, instead of going around this guy's property, he had cut right across it because that was, you know, that was a thing to do. Yeah, you know, I really love Sam. And, you know, it's been so much fun as a comic book fan to like see his story continue to be told in the Falcon and Winter Soldier comics and through the Disney Plus series. But I have a great deal of affection for the character. I haven't seen the series yet. I've seen uh, the trailers from it. It looks amazing. It looks great. And I take a little bit of credit for that because uh, a couple of years ago, I, I dialed up the uh, executive producer of uh, Black Panther and uh, I gave him a little little heck about uh, War Machine and, uh, and the Falcon. I said, look, you got these two great actors. At that point, I think uh, Avengers had come out and maybe Winter Soldier, maybe Winter Soldier had come out. And I said, look, you got these two amazing actors and you're giving them nothing to do. And that would kind of be okay if they weren't the only two black guys in the film. I really wish you would do something with those characters. Now, whether any of that input ever made it over to the Russo brothers or to the guys working on Civil War or any, whether any of that, those comments made it through or not, I don't know, but I'm going to pretend they did. And then I, you know, cause all of a sudden next time we saw Rhodey, he had so much more to do. And next time we saw Falcon, he has so much more to do. So yeah, you know, I'm very pleased about how they've developed those characters and brought those characters along and, and really enjoying it. Thank you to Priest and Kalinda for joining me this week on Marvel's Voices. Oh, man, so great. Next week, we're talking about hip-hop and Marvel fandom with Feral Manch and Marvel Studios Loki with actors Gugu Mbathu-Ra and Wumi Mosaku. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Angelique Roche, Alexis Williams, and Isabel Robertson. Our creative producer is Harry Goh. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wynaila.